You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Handfast, she is away. The feathers in my eyes poke outwards. She is the accident that happens. The sun bursts hazel on my shoulders. She is the point of any sky. Come here, here, here. If it's a tree you'd sulk in, I am pine. If earth, I'm a risen terracotta. If it's all to air you'd turn, turn to me. You are flying inside me. Seventy times her weight, I stand fast. My hand is blunt and steady. She is fierce and sure. Lands, scores, punctures the glove skin. And why I asked for spirals stitched where she might perch. Fjord blue, holm green, scarlet, sand. Like her bloodline, Iceland to Arabia. Because her hooded world's my hand. Hello and welcome to the first SBL podcast of 2017. And what a treat we have to kick off the year. An interview with 2016's Ford Prize winner, Fanny Capaldeo. She was born in Port of Spain in 1973, and her family is notable for having produced several politicians and writers, including V.S. Nye Paul. I always intended to become a writer, she says. By the time I was six, I was very serious about doing poems in pencil and copybooks. In 1991, she moved to Britain to study at Oxford. Her debut, a book-length poem sequence, No Traveller Returns, was published in 2003 and of it she says it was conceived as a book beginning in the Caribbean and ranging outwards via England and Iceland into the country of death. There are dialogues, lyrics, imaginary drama, some prose poems, even short fiction. Over the next decade, Capaldeo published a series of challenging collections, both in the sense of expanding the form and also challenging stereotypes about race and the place of the migrant in society. And we'll be returning to that word migrant during the course of the interview. Now, in the same period, Capaldeo worked at Oxfam head office and for the Oxford Sexual Abuse and Rape Crisis Centre as a volunteer and a volunteer trainer for the Oxford English Dictionary. And she has taught amongst a number of cities at the universities of Leeds, Greenwich, Sheffield and Glasgow. Her victory in the Forward Prize marked a hat-trick for the Caribbean, coming after victories for Jamaica's Kai Miller in 2014 and Claudia Rankin in 2015. I think poetry, Capaldeo says, is a natural expression of humanity that has not been brutalised, which is able to take time and concentrate. Capaldeo was up in Edinburgh at the start of November last year to do a reading at the SPL, so it made sense while she was here to catch up with her. And here's what we spoke about. We're going to talk about your new collection, Measures of Expatriation, and um, I want to talk, or begin by talking about the word expatriation. So I thought I'd look it up in the dictionary just to be on, on the right side. And it means to, to banish a person from his or her native country, or to withdraw oneself from residence in one's native country, or to withdraw oneself from allegiance to one's country. How does, seeing as you've put it you know, in your title and it works its way through the collection, how do you see expatriation and how it relates to your themes in, in the new collection? There are a few ways in which I could answer that, but the first would be where the title comes from. 
and it came from a commission from an American online journal called Gangway, which was doing a special issue on expatriation. So I started to think about the word, uh, but less in the dictionary sense than looking at the patria in it, which is fatherland, and thinking how problematic that is, because it assumes a sort of patrilineal connection by blood to soil, which really is the root of lots of wars. Mm. Then I started thinking how in any given place or any given person, there's endless travelling going on. For example, in a port, you can never really say this is the first time that a person of X nation has landed here, because you don't really know who has stowed away. Or if someone's sitting at the bus stop, you don't, and they appear to be knitting, for all you know, they're remembering a holiday in France or growing up in Nigeria. So that was it, really. I was thinking of, of the internal travelling that, mm. that happens in both places and people, which makes everyone an expatriate. I think it's in the poem, Five Measures of Expatriation. Uh-huh. Uh, you've got the line, or rather it's, it's four lines on top of each other, expatriate, exile, migrant, refugee. Each word is associated with leaving and distance. But I think it's fair to say you also argue through your poems that these words are fluid and can't be fixed. You know, that people might have ideas about these things, but they, they, by their very essence, they resist the ideas that people try and put on, on a word like refugee or migrant. Yes, I, I was thinking once I had that commission about expatriation, how there are people who move around but have different labels applied to them, and that there's almost a moral value attached to these, which is bizarre. So, for example, migrant isn't a word that I grew up with. I remember, in fact, being taught the difference between emigrant and immigrant. Mm. So whether there's an emphasis on having gone from a place or whether you're going into a place. Whereas migrant makes it seem more dehumanising, as if these people are naturally on the move, like herds of buffalo across the plain. Mm. And it, it slightly takes away the idea, if you call someone a migrant, that that person either has a home which they could be bringing with them in terms of heritage and legitimately bringing with them, or that they might have an aspiration to make a home, a sort of, sort of three-minute warning perpetuity, mm. and don't these people always have a backpack? Could we hear something from maybe five measures of expatriation? A record of illegitimate reactions. If these words, expatriate, exile, migrant, refugee turned up in the children's game, what on the instant would be my wordless upsurge? Refugee, severity of the olive green cover of the J.S. Bach Preludes and Fugues book that was my master such long hours of my teens. Flight and the intricacy of flight and a scrambling to be heard, but a coming together in the end. Refugio, a cavern. Mary and Joseph straw in a rough box. Promise of a place, higher up than a stable and more difficult of access, a path to fall off, a lorry underside to grip to, the arrival another unpacking, a station built or unbuilt ever inadequate, dark and cavernous, people with fine features and ripped feet, fetching water with difficulty to a place of non-recognition. There's um, another line earlier in the book about unseeing and unseen, uh, I forget which poem it is, but I think it really captures one of the themes of the collection, the way in which people don't see what's right there 
in front of them, um, things get in the way to stop them, I think mostly race and gender. How did you want to develop that theme throughout the book? That actually does develop from personal experience because I realised that when people first meet someone, they look for a point of connection, but if their own personal information about the world has hardened them in a particular way, then the points of connection they can offer often don't connect. For example, when I met somebody who was in a community of graduate students and he mentioned the 18th century novels he was working on and I paused for a minute because I was going to say something but I didn't want to frighten him off by telling him that I had read La Vie de Marianne, which is a very, very long French one. Mm-hmm. He immediately jumped in and said, oh, like everyone, you're looking blank. Nobody has anything to say about that. And it, it struck me that people are always imposing a reading before hearing an answer. There's a kind of nervousness there these days. One of the, the poems in the book that I really like is um, Cassandra, hashtag yeah. memory and trauma, hashtag, I'm going to say this wrong, living alien style. Oh, yes. And so what I was really interested with that poem is, um, you know, Cassandra's a figure from, from mythology. If somehow you don't know who Cassandra is, she was part of the cast of the sort of Siege of Troy, who, um, in, in a thumbnail sketch, her gift was that she had visions, but her curse was that people wouldn't listen to what she was saying was going to happen. So you, you have a really interesting take on that. Would you want to talk a little bit about your version of Cassandra? Yes, I was commissioned by... For Books' Sake, which is a sort of feminist collective press with staff of all genders, to do a rape crisis fundraiser anthology poem. And I immediately thought of Cassandra, because what's interesting about her is that she gets passed from man to man, despite being of royal blood and despite having a sort of divine gift. And when I looked at it... She actually gets raped in the precinct of the temple of a goddess, Athena, which is a sort of enormous feminist fail. And then I started thinking, who else doesn't get listened to? And then I also started thinking of my own work with Oxford Rape Crisis years ago. And I realised that it can be that if you have a visionary narrative, or if you have a narrative which seems in any way fragmented, people actually don't know how to hear that. It's it's another sort of returning to that seeing without you know looking without seeing, mm. or hearing, you know listening without hearing, that if there isn't actually the willingness to enter a space of hearing of prophetic narrative, then perhaps it just sounds violent or distorted or gabbling, mm. which is like what happens if someone tries to report a rape and they can't tell you well at six o'clock this happened, then at eight o'clock this happened. And then by 8 o'clock the next day, I thought this and I felt that, so at 9 o'clock I rang you. If they don't present a sort of linear narrative, they often get punished mm-hmm. because the amount of violence and fragmentation that they convey is something that doesn't fit in people's ideas of a witness. And so in a way, the most powerful witness then gets switched off. Mm-hmm. And, and also the other interesting thing I thought about the poem was um, Cassandra... As you say, it's of royal blood. She comes from a position of privilege, and yes. in a way, it's a way sort of again ignoring her. Um, you know, um, I, I guess we're all really used to people from privileged backgrounds being heard a bit more than than other people. At least that's the mm-hmm. the cliche. But for her, um, it counts against her. You know that she's from that background. But you also see that in popular culture, though, particularly with women, 
if there's someone who's from a privileged background who dares cross from a supposedly given role, like the actress who played Hermione Kate Granger, and now trying to make feminist statements, and people are immediately saying, oh, that's because she was in a famous film series, rather than allowing her simply to have a brain and a voice. Mm-hmm. It, it's in itself a kind of curse to be a female in the public eye, because then you get given a role which we're not supposed to deviate from. Quite. Mm-hmm. Shall we hear the poem? It's got a strong word in it, uh, so it's, this is not, not the BBC. <laughs> Cassandra, hashtag memory and trauma, hashtag living Ilion style. Terribly, terribly sorry, not. It's hard relating to this one. You know the dead wench in another country. Gifted but an attention seeker. Your camera strikes from afar, like snakes licking out Kay's ears, men of power seem caught up with her, more Twitter than other girls round her. Your camera strikes, Kay's screwing up her eyes in a boat. Speaking for the sisterhood, but from that kind of family? Why listen? She's privilege, complication, must be spoilt. Kay's voice flares victim to her high explosive hair, her thoughts, dismissible, cuntly if you're a man. Peripheral. Take 60 seconds to reread each of the lines above. That took 10 minutes, half as long as my death by stoning. Athena, grey eyed justicer, they've brought me back as if each stone broken for their roads and the rare earths mined for their devices vocalized my far flung blood. But I have questions for you, lawgiver, spoiler. Also plans to find which women you move in these greater days of privilege and complication. Holding on to you was a safe zone, but the hero entered, held and raped me in your precincts, Justicer. Why did you let him do it? Why did you wait to strike him down? Was it in a way I do not understand, due process? Does the burden of proof still fall on me in modern courts? As people encouraged by helpful foreigners to cross a minefield may smile, stretched, blinded, or their legs blown off. So each of my memories, a living and willing witness, gets up to walk to you to tell my story, but doesn't make it. His camera strikes from afar. If you want it to add up, why give me the gift of prophecy? I split, spill truth like marrow from bones, gleaming on stones strewn ground. Could I do a footnote there? Yes, please. It was the god Apollo who was one of the people she had run-ins with uh, and who gave her the gift and curse. Uh, and uh, the camera striking from afar adapts one of the epithets for him, but also the comment on modern news. I dedicated the poem to Judy Raymond, who's a very, very fearless historical researcher at former newspaper managing editor in Trinidad, also a classical scholar. And uh, the 10 minutes death by stoning thing I actually researched mm-hmm. because of things that are going on in the world now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's interesting the way that that poem 
um, unspools, as it were, um, because it, it's it's multi-voiced, isn't it? Really, yes. so it starts starts out almost sort of like um, I, I feel it's like almost like a pre like a like an interview on, on TV or something. That's the interviewer at the start, so you explaining or giving some sense of what the story is, and then you're actually talking to the person themselves, or you know, there's this sort of contrasting voices on, on what's happened. Yes, and also thinking of the ability to bring somebody back over the sticks. Mm -hmm. So if you see it on the page, uh, there's a large uh, sort of fat paragraph, uh, and then that's with the sort of news or interview voice. Uh, then there's a couplet uh, where Cassandra's starting to speak, uh, and then there's a much thinner more obviously lyrical a bit, which is basically who ghost. Mm. It's a sort of eerie thing that poetry can do, isn't it? It's sort of like bringing voices back from the dead, like you're you're almost in communion with them, or it's like a sort of, um, not a Ouija board, but kind of like that sort of, you're having to make yourself a vessel for these sort of voices to return to the world. Yes, I think that is very much the kind of poetry that I try to write, and that's why I always find it a bit odd when there are recommendations for people to find their voice or praise for people for having written something which couldn't have been written by anyone else. Mm. I'm very interested in the poets who are like AM, FM radios. Mm. I've always thought that the idea of finding your own voice was um, over-fetishised, you know, this sort of idea that um, your amazing um, individuality should... <laughs> be the, the marker of whether you're a successful poet or not. If nothing else, the people who are, develop their own really idiosyncratic voice just um, set themselves up for parody, really, don't they, in pastiche, rather than trying to serve, I guess, whatever they're really trying to explore. Yes, and even the people who are thought of as having a particularly distinctive voice, like Jared Manley Hopkins, when you go back and read him, realise that his poetry is very, very various. Mm. So it's almost as if it's... Uh, a sort of curse to mm. tell someone that they have a distinctive voice. Yes, or I mean, even someone like T.S. Eliot is very distinctive. Carved his sort of uh, his his voice, I suppose, from so many disparate um, uh, writers that went before him. And again, same with yourself. I think he is at times that eerie sort of summoning of voices. He does he do voice uh, police in different voices or whatever it was he said. Yes, he also has some very funny ones, like the one with the hippopotamus gaining mm. heaven. Remember that one. <laughs> well, I retweeted it, or rather, I tweeted it uh, on some T.S. Eliot anniversary, but nobody retweeted it. So no. It was just so, <laughs> so lacking in decorum. Tragic. <laughs> poor, poor hippo in heaven. I want you to talk about your poems in, in the new collection about Louise um, Bourgeois, the insomnia drawings. Uh, that was an exhibition uh, in, near here, uh, where we are at the Poetry Library, mm -hmm. the Fruit Market, which I, which I went to as well. And as I recall, um, it was basically the whole of the first floor, wasn't it? It was different rooms, but there were all these drawings that she had done while she couldn't get to sleep at night, hence why they were called insomnia drawings. What was it that, what was your reaction to it, and how did that lead to the poems about that? I spent quite a lot of time in the gallery, both listening to what people said, uh, but also just being among the drawings, uh, many of which were in a red felt pen, mm. and had repeated shapes, uh, and some of which were in music manuscript paper. I had done quite a lot of music as a child, and also I often think in both French and English, uh, the bits of text she had scribbled were running between French and English. Uh, it was weirdly like opening up uh, a sort of parallel chamber into a head which was recognisable to me, mm. because uh, even though I've never had insomnia, I sleep like an opossum, uh, I've often had to stay awake. Uh, 
for travel or whatever other mm. reason. And it was easy to slip into kind of alternative night mindset in the gallery. And also to see more pattern than people credit her with, uh, because on the music paper some of the sort of uh, splodges uh, are at points which look like peaks and troughs, so they look like a sort of emotional mapping. Or some of the waves which look almost mathematical mm. also recall waves of water. And she was of course in America at the time, but she grew up in France and grown up in France near a river where tapestries were washed to clean them because she used to help her parents in tapestry restoration. So it, it seemed like a whole life was running around on the walls. Mm. I'd say she couldn't get to sleep, but somehow that sort of, that dream life, those memories, those things had come out on, on, on the paper, basically. Yes, and the, and the things like uh, little bushes and roses, uh, beautiful sort of concentric roses, then some very odd ones of female figures uh, with an almost circus-like glee and carrying sheep or apparently giving birth to sheep. Mm. I wanted to ask you about the lines that are in, um, I think it's the first part of it, because it is bloody well there and in effects or in effect the artist fiercely repurposes whatever is to hand. I mean, that's, that's quite a good credo for any artist to have really, isn't it? You know, um, to explain why they do what they do. Yes, uh, I've often thought of just the, the sheer level of opportunism as well as opportunity mm-hmm. gets uh, overlooked when people are looking for profound intentions if every artist uh, were a, a sort of early Methodist preacher. What about one of the poems from, from the insomnia drawings um, um, section? She courted sleep by drawing sheep, then one was drawn to her. Friend sheep, if I stretched wide enough, I could give birth to a child like you. A round-eyed barrier against normality. A rare breed indeed, not a Marie Antoinette pet. Legendary, plus que prehistoric. A sheep like you at my knees, and pre-ruined trade routes at my feet, and we would be in Sumeria. Dans la nuit was lost, a closet heterosexual. My children's successful sleep rendering me anti-maternal. As if my body had not gaped, was a gap, was immaterial. So I placed my hands between my legs, found fleece, began to pull till wonderstruck I ushered you into my studio, away from the world, from the waking world. Peaceable and only slightly sinister, since languageless and eager in your bleating, about the silence brushing up against us from all sides. My darling newborn ancient beast, unboxed and not for sacrifice. I count on you, take us away, cross another and another stile, nibble your way through the hedge of mist springing from the Hudson, through the thorns of light thrown up by the Atlantic. Voyage safely, amicable sheep, into France, no questions asked. I would flatten with you into tapestry, my hair and yours washed by handfuls in the river, vu que in profound night in these circumstances, it is déjà as if insomnia hangs us, already hooked to a wall. Well, one of the things I was really interested to read in, in your biography was that you did graduate work in Old Norse and uh, mm-hmm. translation theory. So I just wanted to ask, 
uh, what did you take away from those uh, and, and put into your poetry? Uh, I'll mention three nice things and one very bad one. <laughs> the first nice thing was uh, because Old Norse is a highly inflected language grammatically, in courtly scaldic verse, word order could be very messed around. And what's interesting then is you get revelations, little bits of sort of sight or insight, only as a metaphor unfolds in a very wound way. It's like seeing sort of rope wound around a bit of carved wood. Mm. It's not linear grammar. And I tried to take that into English, which is a much less flexible language grammatically, by just being more careful about what bit of, of image or sound was encountered at which point in the line. And I think some people thought it was being experimented in an avant-garde way, but it's actually being experimented in a pre-1500 way. And Back to the future. Yes. A second thing that I got from... Old Icelandic was uh, there was an extraordinary sense uh, of Iceland being different from mainland Scandinavia. It was an island nation with a proto-democracy, a time when mainland Scandinavia and Europe were basically writing a lot of religious prose. The Icelanders were trying to write historiographies of ordinary life. Mm. So their heroes might be poets and werewolves and drunkards and lawyers, but they were also sheep farmers. You could zigzag between a very heroic moment about stringing your bow and a terrible squabble over the stealing of cheese in the Alstaga. I quite liked that because it reminded me a bit of Trinidad and the sort of thing that V.S. Naipaul does in his early work, like Miguel Street, where you can go between something that is completely pathetic and sort of tragic in the failure of heroic aspirations and something that's amusingly petty. Then the third good thing that I took was just going to Iceland and seeing the landscape because a lot of people see the metaphors that I spoke of before as being very stylized. For example, gold as being the fire of the sea and that kind of thing. But when, for example, you see the winter sun on the water of a waterfall that has frozen in part you realise it looks like very intricately wrought gold. And also, where the water is flat with ice, then it looks like beaten gold, like gold leaf. So while I can't actually prove that there's a naturalistic dimension, certainly there's a sort of life between the most stylized poetry and the most visceral landscape. Now, the bad thing is, when I did my doctoral viva, the two people who vivered me were what I would now call racist, and they told me that I shouldn't have been allowed to do my doctorate because they couldn't trust that I had a good enough grasp of standard English without linguistic interference, and that they hadn't bothered to read the last chapter of my thesis, which is the one I was most proud of, where I deduced an old Norse theory of the translation of action to poetry from what had been going on in my saga's account of the hero's uh, translation of his actions into poetry. And, and then I tried to forget it. I mean, I literally tried to forget the language. I turned away from an academic career because I thought if I had to spend an hour and a half fighting my examiners when I thought I was going to have the best conversation of my life about something I had spent ten years learning, then I also want to write poetry that don't have the energy to fight people in my workplace and to fight people in the publishing world. Mm. So I'm just going to do the poetry fights. 
Right, so their reaction is what led to you concentrating on writing poetry rather than trying to lead an academic life as well. Yeah, and a very sad thing happened earlier this year, which is a man from BBC Scotland rang me up uh, asking me to do perhaps a piece on the Isle of Lewis Chessmen, and I had to confess that I had turned away from Old Norse. Mm -hmm. That was so sad. Mm. Can I finish by maybe something a bit happier? Yes. Uh, Congratulations on your Forward Prize win earlier Thank this year. Um, when I used to be a journalist, mm -hmm. um, we used to have a saying that two is a coincidence, three is a trend, and you're the third poet from the Caribbean originally to win the Forward Prize in a row. I know that you and Kai Miller and Claudia Rankin are very different poets. Um, it's actually more of a sort of and maybe a mistake on my part to, to say just because you're from the Caribbean there might be some sort of trend. But do you think there's maybe something just very loosely, you know, um, right now that resonates between what's happening in the world and maybe the experiences that someone from the Caribbean might have had and put into their poetry? Yes, I'm going to answer that slightly at length, which is possibly bad. No, no, please. But uh, basically, when there was the rise of identity politics and poetry, and roughly around the 80s, because I won't talk about the political movements following the independence of former colonies in the 1670s, there was a way in which the claiming of different standards of English, like Caribbean standard English, different dialects, and different lived experience as valid material and media of poetry was very, very important. But then there was a subtle incorporation of that by more repressive forces, uh, which amounted to, oh, no, 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 you've done the variety of your experience, uh, now please can you just sort of write in a very Caribbean way, preferably about uh, things that happened that were a bit bad or a bit exotic. Mm. So tell us how you grew up in a warm place and then went to cold lands and you know, lost your love and had to go looking in the corner shop for food and that kind of thing. And that was quite interesting, because if you read a poet like Kamau Graffit, He's a world poet who covers everything, whereas if you read people who shall be nameless, they're being encouraged to do a kind of self-cloning, almost reality TV representation of a person from over there. And what I think is interesting is that Kai and Claudia and I, as you say, are very different poets. Kai is prophetic and political, and he wrote a poem in the form of a book-length dialogue. Mm -hmm. And Claudia is engaging at anecdote level with a huge analysis of microaggressions in daily life, and also the translation into popular media of figures like Serena Williams. And what I mean, I've been doing all the things you've been talking about, which are different and sort of multilingual and transhistorical. So in a way, that's a resurgence of the first idyllic and broad vision that we, we are not limited by the islands that we come from, but rather enabled to open up new varieties of experience. Whereas what I think we're seeing now is both an openness of the judging committee, okay, these poets might have been born within a thousand miles of each other, but they're very different, mm. as English poets, American poets can be very different Absolutely. from each other. Uh, Sylvia Plath is different from Billy Hollins. Yeah. But uh, what we're also seeing is a sort of, of uh, right-wing backlash, the sort of, how dare you, how dare you, you're appropriating Western culture.
or you're appropriate, never mind that you grew up in the West, mm. go back in your box. Ridiculous. Yeah, but, but also happy, because I mean, I think there are more of us. If you look at the composition of the prize committee, it was very, very international. It's a Hungarian British judge and a Grenadian British judge and an American man and a couple of others, you know, a songwriter. There's the first one from the collection, The Measures of Expatriation, or Expatriation, which is about a hawking glove, which is in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Handfast. She is away. The feathers in my eyes poke outwards. She is the accident that happens. The sun bursts hazel on my shoulders. She is the point of any sky. Come here, here, here. If it's a tree you'd sulk in, I am pain. If earth, I'm risen terracotta. If it's all to air you'd turn, turn to me. You are flying inside me. Seventy times her weight, I stand fast. My hand is blunt and steady. She is fierce and sure. Lands, scores, punctures the glove skin. And why I asked for spirals stitched where she might perch. Fjord blue, holm green, scarlet, sand. Like her bloodline, Iceland to Arabia. Because her hooded world's my hand. And I'll read the last one. Which you might think is not happy because it's about stacks talking, but it's about the ecologically responsible cull, and also about poetry and form. Stalker, he waits. Without knowing me, he waits. The tips of branches, edible and whiny, bring spring by suggestion to him who in autumn dawn, eager, with wet knees, disregards me, being drawn by me. He waits, and in me he waits. I branch, the form is branching, it bounds like sight from dark to bright, back again. The form is from me, it is him, poems, tag, first sight and most known. In him I wait, when he falls. Needs must, hot heap, nothing left over, tree-like no longer, nor forlorn, we're totaled. And that's it for another episode of the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. I'd like to thank Vanny Capaldeo for coming in and speaking to myself. I'd like to thank Will Campbell, who uh, composed and uh, performs music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. And of course, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Now, if you're interested in what the SPL is up to in between podcasts, uh, you can check out our website, which can be found at www.scottishportraitlibrary.org.uk. We have our Twitter account, at By Leaves We Live. We have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram account as well. Uh, that's at SPL Scotland. And you'll see images there of books that have just been added to our collection. Occasionally snaps of visiting poets. And it only really remains for me to uh, say that we'll have another podcast uh, next month. And that um, let's, we should wrap up the show with one last poem, which Fanny Capaldale will read for us. And I'll read the last one. 
which you might think is not happy because it's about sex talking, but it's about ecologically responsible cull, and, and also about poetry and form. Stalker, he waits. Without knowing me, he waits. The tips of branches, edible and whiny, bring spring by suggestion to him who in autumn dawn, eager, with wet knees, disregards me, being drawn by me. He waits, and in me he waits. I branch, the form is branching, it bounds like sight from dark to bright, back again. The form is from me, it is him, poems, tag, first sight and most known. In him I wait, when he falls, needs must, hot heap, nothing left over, tree-like no longer, nor forlorn, we're totaled. downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.